Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Gaius Latham. This is episode 52, and it's Operation Protea, D-Day plus one. As we heard last episode, by 6pm on the 24th of August 1941, Battle Group 2-0 was in control of its objectives in Zangongo, having destroyed at least four tanks and capturing vehicles, guns and ammunition. The fort and water tower, key targets in the town, were eventually reached and taken. The bridge was also secured by 1730 and was immediately prepared with demolition charges by the engineers. It was found later that Fapla and plan officers and their Soviet advisers had hurriedly fled the town, leaving Fapla and Swapa soldiers in their positions, and who fought furiously. And so the sun had set on a long day's fighting, but Battle Group 2-0's rest was going to be interrupted in the early hours of the morning. I was part of that group dug in overlooking the river alongside a road out of Zangongo. Before dawn, we began to hear the sound of tanks approaching. The first sound you hear is the deep bellow of the powerful engine, then the squeaking of the tracks. Little did we know that there was another incident that took place in the north when a convoy tried to leave Zangongo and drove straight into Captain Jan Hochart's combat team, which ambushed the troop carriers. There was chaos as the soldiers jumped from their vehicles and ran into the bush, the South Africans decimated that convoy. Meanwhile, south of Zangongo, we heard the noises of heavy vehicles approaching. We were told to prepare for an assault by tanks, which was not the best news I'd heard in the past 24 hours. Commandant Dippenai guessed that this was an attempt at striking the main force, although how Fapla thought they'd surprised the South Africans as they made such a racket in the stillness of the African night, I'll never know. Two troops of Ratel 90s were posted to the south side of the battle group's lager, although I had no idea this was happening. Merely we could hear our heavy vehicles moving around. Suddenly all hell broke loose. From our vantage point, we watched the rifles systematically take out Fapla's vehicles, including the tanks. Then the ammunition trucks began to explode and the shrapnel was flying around. As I explained last podcast, my foxhole was shallow because I'd hit tree roots, so this led to much quick scratching around as the humming and whizzing bits zipped past some embedding themselves in my sarmal, which was parked behind us. The trucks continued exploding for what seemed like an eternity, but it was more like an hour and a half as dawn broke. We were close to the fuel vehicles and our own ammunition truck. Each flash bang as the Fafla vehicle went up caused additional consternation. Sometimes we watched as chunks of the enemy's vehicles spun through the air, hitting trees and pinging off the armoured vehicles. Then it was over and the medics, along with a group of 101 Battalion Infantry and Intelligence Officers, began to clean up the tanks which had been hit by armour-piercing rounds. This was not a pleasant business, although we found tins of Russian or Cuban cigarettes, which we eagerly shared. It was only after we lit them up that we realised that the cigarettes were mixed with marijuana. At that point, most of the folks cleaning up the messy tanks didn't mind that too much. It helped obliterate the smells, but very quickly, the intelligence blokes found out and confiscated the tins. During the morning of the 25th, Battle Group 1-0 had gathered up enemy equipment on the river plain, then crossed the bridge over the Kaneni River, and by 0900 they were inside Zangongo. Their role going forward would be to protect Task Force Alpha from a Fapla counter-attack. This would probably come from Kahama, so they were tasked with protecting the bridge crossing and ensured it was ready for demolition. The paratroopers were detached from Battle Group 1-0 and sent further north to seek out planned positions, but found these were all abandoned. 
Another patrol was sent up the road towards Kahama and inevitably made contact with a combined Swapo Fapla convoy which was on its way to Zangongo. Three BTR-60 armoured cars were destroyed and two BM-21 multiple rocket launchers were captured. The Pathfinder Group, which had been operating around Piu Piu, moved to support Battle Group 1-0, with Combat Team 3, commanded by Major Joe Veyers, expected to position itself close to Shikuse, about 18 kilometres southeast of Kahama, also on the 25th. If Fapla attacked, then they would create a delaying action, a fighting retreat, if you like, back to Zangongo. Three armoured car troops, or Rattle and Irland 90s, joined this team, along with a platoon of Rattle 60s and one Rattle 20 mechanised infantry platoon, a troop of four G2 artillery pieces, engineers and that unmanned aerial vehicle, which the SADF was using, the UAV. 44 Parachute Brigade's Pathfinder Group, with Colonel Jan Breitenbach, was still in tow and would be part of that combat team. They duly advanced northwestwards and took up positions across the Kama to Zangongo Highway, with their flanks protected to the south by pathfinders and the artillery in the rear. The town, though, of Zangongo wasn't completely in South African hands. Captain Louis Haramsa had died and more than a dozen South Africans had been wounded. Then Army Chief Lieutenant General Yanni Heldnes thought he should arrive, as he'd done on other occasions during previous operations. He wanted to see how things were going for himself. By now, the reserve battle group Mamba, consisting of two parachute companies, had headed off towards Mongua, due east of Zangongo, because enemy there were likely based on the main road to Anjiva, the next major target. An Alouette gunship was providing cover overhead, and unfortunately this would be the crew's last flight. The helicopter was doubling up as a spotter for artillery, and the South Africans fired off a salvo of Valkyrie rockets towards Mongua, but they fell short. The rattles moved forward, but Commander Lieutenant Chris Wall's rattle hit an obstruction and the steering was damaged. He had no time to transfer to another vehicle, so he was forced to continue in his damaged machine. As they moved, though, they suddenly came under fire. Wall said afterwards that he thought the fire was speculative. Then he realized that the Alouette was hovering 150 feet directly over his rattle. Walls had his head jutting partly out of the top of the command vehicle and was ducking continuously to avoid the enemy rounds and the branches. Seconds later, the Alouette was hit by a 14.5mm anti-aircraft gun. The Alouette burst into flames and crashed, killing pilot Lieutenant Bertus Roos and Sergeant Clifton Stacy. What had happened was the 14.5mm Fapla crew had heard both the Alouette and the Rattles and waited until the last moment to fire. That meant the Alouette was point-blank range, when it was peppered with shells. Farpla was learning new tricks, and their commanders appeared determined to hold each town the SADF was approaching from now on. Battle Group 5-0 moved on to Nahoni after securing Mupa, where two platoons and four Alouette gunships hit a Swapo listening post, killing two and the rest retreated, leaving their radio behind. The South Africans were moving non-stop, because two more companies from Battle Group 6-0 secured Ivali, and 3-2 Battalion's Delta Company was posted to ambush anyone travelling on the Onjiva Nahoni Road. The rest of the battle group shifted to Dover. Night fell once more, with the usual sentries posted, passwords created, and a rushed meal before darkness descended. A call was received at around 2220 when troops stationed in the rear near the G2 artillery reported that at least eight enemy vehicles were heading towards them from the southeast. It turned out that Fapla had sent a powerful artillery unit of their own 
in an attempt at dislodging the South Africans. This consisted of a BTR-152 APC, BM-21 MRLs and 23mm anti-aircraft guns. They passed through into the middle of Combat Team 3's lager and were ambushed and destroyed with the SAD of taking three wounded and capturing two BM-21s. At sunrise of the 26th of August, the combat team continued with mopping up when they were targeted by FAPLA 122mm rockets that missed. It so happened that only two South African companies, which were relatively lightly armed, now stood between the Angolans and the main SAD of force at Zangongo. Instead of attacking immediately, Vapla's commanders delayed for some reason and the SADF was provided with more time to sweep the area around the crucial town. This exercise focused on Swapo bases that had been identified on Fapla maps that had been captured during Operation Protea. But all Swapo bases had been abandoned. By 1500 hours on the 26th of August, the force prepared for the next phase of the operation to begin assaulting on Jiva. Task Force Alpha, though, had to be reorganized. Battle Group 1-0 was initially assigned to protect Sangongo and the task force from counterattack, possibly from Lubango and Kahama. They had already taken up positions around the Kuneni Bridge, which was a key point on the roads, as I've said, between eastern and western Kuneni province. It was vital that this bridge remained in SADF hands, because had Fapla driven south, they would have inevitably arrived there from the west. Standing looking over the area, Commandant Roland de Vries who led Battle Group 1-0, decided it would be wise to move his entire force east of the bridge, across the river. Battle Group 4-0 then transferred to Task Force Bravo further east, while Battle Groups 2-0 and 3-0 also headed in an easterly direction towards Mongua and were moving cautiously. Once the defences had been overrun, the idea was to turn towards Anjiva, southeast of Zangongo. The SADF would be attacking this important town from the north, and tactically, this was hoped would cause the defenders some trouble. On the way, though, Mongua had to be overcome. It was a small village, and combat team Mamba, with two companies under command of Commandant Johnny Kutze, were assigned the task of clearing Swapa and Fapla from the settlement. During the long night of the 26th, Intel picked up radio messages from Lubango urging Fapla's 11th Brigade and Swapo to jointly defend Onjiva. Fapla's command also made it clear that their units had to destroy all classified documents before killing all the prisoners in the town jail. They retained a few radios but destroyed the rest and they were told to hide the money from the bank and town. What was far more serious for the Angolans was what to do about the hard surface runway at Onjiva. The HQ wanted this put out of action so told Fapla to destroy it and to plant as many landmines as possible around the strategic point. There were now more defensive positions on the road to Anjiva and each had to be destroyed. Corporal Kuas Prinsloo led the Rattles into Mongua. The enemy trenches lay on either side of the road and he hit these at full speed. Vapla fired back with 14.5mm anti-aircraft guns, but the Rattle 90 silenced these almost immediately. A few enemy 76mm guns opened up and the South Africans were forced to seek shelter as these heavy weapons laid down constant fire. Fapla had also opened up with machine guns and AK-47s, the rounds whizzing about over the heads of the South Africans. A few 60mm mortars were then set up on the roof of Rattles in what was an improvisation, then these laid down an accurate fire and the 76mm stopped firing. Then the troops conducted another swift fire manoeuvre attack on the town and finally it was an SAD of hands. 
At 1500 hours, 30 formations of Buccaneers and Canberras carried out a re-strike on the radar installations at Chibembe. Remember, they'd been damaged the day before Operation Pratia began. This time, the SAF was fitted long-delay fuses to their bombs to discourage attempts to repair the site. Papla responded to the attack by the Canberras and Buccaneers firing their 23mm anti-aircraft guns, but no plane was hit. Just out of interest, Buccaneer pilot Dave Knussen had developed a serious nosebleed as they flew towards Chibembe. He then stuffed a scarf into the oxygen mask and flew the 105-minute flight without a hitch. But when he landed, his ground crew obviously thought he'd been wounded as they climbed up the ladder to help him out. Meanwhile, the airfield at Ayonde was being used by the South Africans and after some basic maintenance. Three Dakotas flew in with supplies, equipment and a mortar team for Task Force Bravo. Twelve Pumas were also stationed there for the day as well as a Bosbok reconnaissance plane that flew intelligence-gathering missions over Kaunda, north of Anjiba. That night, the SA Air Force was busy again at 2200 hours, as they dropped a 55-man reconnaissance team by parachute from a C-130 north of Anjiba. The unit missed their mark, but recovered quickly to take up positions. Now it was onwards to Anjiba, and the commanders once again caucused in the main HQ tent that night. This was going to be another tough nut to crack. The town was defended by two battalions protected by 23mm anti-aircraft guns, a tank squadron of T-34s, as well as an armoured car company with BTR-23s and an artillery battery with both 82mm and 76mm field guns. Dipinar's 2-0 battle group was going to spearhead the attack, assaulting from the northwest. He then hold the areas taken and allow Serpentine to continue phase two of the attacks, swinging past alongside, also striking from the northwest. But Commandant Dipinar was not very happy. Why split the attack? He asked. Surely both should strike simultaneously. Surely both should strike simultaneously, with Serpentine on his left flank, directly from the north. The pamphlet drop was going on, by the way, at the same time urging Fapla soldiers and Angolan civilians to leave the town as the SADF was aiming at Swabo. Civilians did flee into the bush, we met them later, but Fapla stayed, obeying their commanders in Lubango and preparing their welcome. This was going to be a very hot reception, including reinforcements. Two more tanks, two AA guns and two more infantry platoons arrived in Onjiba to fight against the South Africans. Plan headquarters the Swapo armed wing ordered its fighters into the bush, though, to harass the South Africans in guerrilla fashion from the rear. As you're going to hear in a moment, it almost worked. SADF Intel picked up these radio calls and warned the battle groups about stray enemy soldiers wandering around the felt. We were on tenterhooks constantly, ready for action, which was wise. Close to midnight, Dipinan Serfontaine called in the officers and explained the coming day's tactics. It was a detailed list of orders and instructions. Everyone understood exactly what they had to do. And so early on the morning of the 27th of August 1981, a massive bombardment began as 20 Mirages, 5 Canberras and 5 Buccaneers attacked the enemy positions. Each Canberra dropped two 450kg bombs from its wings as well as eight 250kg bombs in their bays. The Buccaneers dropped sticks of eight 250kg bombs. I was drawn up behind an ammunition truck in the 2-0 convoy, in lines to protect from air attack, and we felt the ground shudder. The deep sounds of heavy bombs rumbled constantly. 
What we didn't know was that some of these planes had hit the wrong target, but pilots reported a drop-off in anti-aircraft fire nevertheless. We also heard the artillery set up behind us, firing over our heads into the town. As I waited, chewing on a quick breakfast in my truck, a flash caught my eye from the right. We were in a partial clearing just outside town. An RPG-7 rocket passed inches over the top of the boxes of ammunition on the flatbed truck in front of me, then bounced away over the felt on the left. It didn't explode, but slid to a halt about 200 meters away. Had it hit, it would have been curtains. No invitation necessary, my co-driver and myself, who'd been listening to the Eagles, by the way, on our specially constructed tape recorder as we nibbled on dry rations, leapt out and leopard-crawled behind the vehicle. A squad of buffalo soldiers who were protecting our flanks then ran at the thick bush to try and find whomever had fired the RPG. They returned empty-handed, but we are now highly aware of just how close the enemy were. A few seconds later, there was more firing from inside our vehicle lager. An enemy observation trench had been found in a small rise behind some trees. Grenades were lobbed into this position. Then it was time to move. The Onjiva Sky was a mass of diving aircraft and puffs of anti-aircraft smoke, grey and black. Aircraft were also hitting on Jiva Airport, where I was to spend a few days dug in after the assault on the town. This was a key target, and Fapla defended it with everything they had from two positions, one 700 metres south of the airstrip and the other about 1,500 metres west. A number of SA-7 missiles were fired back at the attacking Mirage F-1AZs, and the pilots reported they'd been fired at with the heavy anti-aircraft weapon, the 57mm. Six of these mirages dived onto the airfield, dropping airburst Mark 82 bombs which bounced and blew up, scattering shrapnel for hundreds of meters. Six other Mirage F-1CZs attacked, and the Fapler Brigade HQ in town was also hit with Mark 82 bombs. Then the battle groups began their swift assault in earnest, working through the large target from northwest to southeast. Civilians were going to be hit in this attack, as you're going to hear. While most had left the town, many remained, too afraid to take the chances in the bush. Tanks and mortar positions were awaiting the troops, and 122mm rockets were also being fired into the moving SADF units. By 1100 hours 45, two F1AZ mirages flashed into view, hitting a T-34 in a hull-down position to the northwest of the centre of town. These tanks were difficult to hit. Farpla had buried them up to their turrets in sandy soil, which reduced the target, but it did mean that many of the tanks were now stationary. We realized later that that was a fatal mistake, because not only were they now static, their guns were pointing south. They were dug in facing the wrong direction, and their weaker rears were now going to face the oncoming rattles and earlins. While not all the tanks were dug in, had Fapla used their 14 tanks more effectively, things may have been much more deadly for the South African attackers. At 1200 hours 45, air support was called in once more, and a pair of Mirage F1AZs flown by Norman Mini and Paddy Carolas focused on an artillery fire control point. That was the famous water tower that loomed over on Jiva, an obvious site for an artillery spotter to hide. Because the tower was in the center of built-up areas, section leader Mini decided to dive straight down, then fire all 72 of his 68mm rockets in Salvo from relatively high altitude. After setting his sights, both mirages rolled into the high dive. Fapler spotted them almost immediately and opened up with everything. It must have been extremely disconcerting because Mini then forgot to release his rockets at high altitude, which, as I said, was the plan. 
His wingman, Carolas, reminded him and he said, Oh, sh- let's make it an academic dive. Hastily, he changed his sights as the Mirage plunged, then fired all 72 rockets. Needless to say, most missed the water tower. And as the two Mirages pulled up and turned, Carolas saw an SA-7 missile trail approaching from the right. Already pulling high G's, he turned even tighter. The missile missed and vanished into his six o'clock. But he now had an unforeseen problem. Both his missile heads on board had been damaged by the high G turn, shattering the covering. Even a large insect could have set these off, atomizing the aircraft. Carolus and Minnie discussed by radio what to do. Should he jettison the arms? No, said Minnie. They could be triggered by a change in the air pressure. So Carolus was forced to fly all the way back to Undangwa, keeping a sharp eye out for birds or large groups of insects. When he arrived, he was told to circle Undangwa while his colleagues landed first, just so that if he exploded on the runway, his demise wouldn't affect the other planes. Then he landed, extremely carefully apparently, and rolled the Mirage to a quiet corner of Ndangwa. The armorers then approached in a jeep. They jumped out, looked at the missile from a distance, and ran off. It must have been a rather difficult moment for Carolus, still sitting in the plane. He then gingerly opened the canopy, climbed down, and ran off himself from the extremely dangerous missiles, which could explode at any moment. He lay on the ground near the armorers, who were deciding what to do. Eventually, one obviously drew the short straw and sprinted back to the aircraft, ripping away the connecting cable to the missile as he passed. He ran back, took a breather, and then repeated the performance on the second missile, and survived. Back in Onjiba, the three combat teams of 1020 and 30 were continuing their attack. 30 had headed southwest to occupy the airfield, while 20 and 10 headed past Onjiba to their left in a flanking maneuver which caught the defenders off guard. 10 was moving swiftly towards their objective, when three T-34 tanks rolled out of town, but two Rattle 90s commanded by Lieutenant Johan Grovier and Candidate Officer Andris Helm spotted them. The Rattles were zigzagging around and the T-34s couldn't get a proper bead on the two vehicles. Had the T-34s hit these vehicles, the thinly armoured Rattle would have come off second best. It was extremely vulnerable to the T-34's 85mm gun. The tank gunners missed their first shot, but both Rattles managed to knock out two the third T-34 retreated. Then 23mm guns opened up on 1-0, but artillery support was called in and took out these enemy positions. The enemy then broke and fled from there, and all meaningful resistance against 1-0's assault had ended. Teams 3-0 and 2-0, however, were going to find the attack on Anjiva a little more challenging. But that's for next episode. It's time now to halt and secure the perimeter. Please head over to my website, abwarpodcast.com. There's a link to send emails if you want to chat. Or you can direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.